but be careful that you don't become like Job's friends who were sure that his sufferings were brought on by some serious sin in his life. They were absolutely positive about that. But they, you know what, they didn't know what they were talking about. They spoke dogmatically, but they were dogmatically wrong. They looked at Job and they said, obviously there's something that you're not telling us. Why would you suffer like this? You've sinned against the Almighty. It's been said that, uh, for some of us, if we weren't always jumping to conclusions, we wouldn't get any exercise at all. <laughs> I enjoy the old Perry Mason mysteries. Poor Hamilton Berger. He was wrong every single time, as far as I know. He looked at a few facts, ignored a bunch of facts, and invariably came to the wrong conclusion. Sometimes I think he just charged people with murder so that Perry would discover who really did it. I wonder how he kept his job. Like Mr. Berger, Job's friends made their assumptions based on incomplete evidence as well. So did the people who attacked the Apostle Paul. Paul and Job were two of the godliest men who ever lived. But oh, how they suffered. Today on Verse by Verse, Pastor Steve Kreloff will be wrapping up our series of lessons from 2 Corinthians chapter 6 about hindrances to the gospel. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, a role he's been filling since 1981. As we can tell by the headlines today, being well-known and being popular are not the same thing. We can see from the life of Paul that that's nothing new. In this chapter of 2 Corinthians, Paul gave us a long list of hardships he endured for the sake of the gospel. One of them was misperceptions and the slander that came about as a result. But he endured those things so that no one could try to use his example as an excuse for rejecting Christ. Here's Pastor Steve to tell us why God kept putting Paul through those perils and then rescuing him. Now let me offer a brief word of, of application here. We have to be very careful in our own lives, unlike Paul's enemies, that we don't interpret all suffering as God's punishment for either some sin in our life or sin in somebody else's life. We have to be careful. It may be that, that God is using some suffering in your life as a form of discipline. This does happen. We don't want to negate that. that. That does happen. There are times in our lives God does discipline us. It's, I wouldn't call it punishment. A judge punishes us for our sin. A father corrects us for our own good. We'll, we will never as Christians be punished for our sin. Christ was punished in our place. But as a loving father, if we get out of line, he will bring discipline into our lives to bring us back. That's the point of Hebrews chapter 12 to tell us that if you are a legitimate son and daughter, if you really are a child of God's and you can't get away with sin, he'll discipline you for your own good. Now, how do you know if that's taking place? How would you know if there's sin in your life and God's discipline is applied because of it? It's very simple. Very simple. You'll know if it's discipline because God will bring conviction of your sin along with the discipline. You won't have to figure it out. You won't have to get introspective and go, well, what must be in my life? Let me think about it. That will lead to depression. That when you look within and you try to figure it out, and you'll come up with things that probably aren't even true. You'll heap guilt upon yourself that's not even there, shouldn't be there. If God disciplines you for sin, it's his responsibility to tell you, and he will tell you as you read the word and you know what's wrong in your life, he'll bring conviction to your life. It's not a guessing game. Christians don't have to figure it out very far when they, they don't have to think about it much when God deals with sin in their lives. They know it. But be careful that you don't become like Job's friends who were sure that his sufferings were brought on by some serious sin in his life. They were absolutely positive about that. But they, you know what, they didn't know what they were talking about. They spoke 
dogmatically, but they were dogmatically wrong. They looked at Job and they said, obviously, there's something that you're not telling us. Why would you suffer like this? You've sinned against the Almighty. But you know what the purpose of Job's sufferings were? This man, far from being the worst sinner on the earth, he was the most godly man. And the purpose of Job's sufferings were designed to bring God glory by showing Satan that genuine followers of the Lord follow him regardless of how good life is. That's that's the point. Remember, Satan said to, to God, he said, God said, you see my servant Job and what a righteous man he is. And Satan, in essence, said, sure. He, he says he loves you because look at his life. Who wouldn't? The man is wealthy. The man has blessings. You take that away from him, you'll see he'll curse you to your face. And that's that's what the book is about. And then when when Job had some physical suffering happen to him in terms of material goods, Satan then said, well, sure, it's okay because he's got his health. If a man has his health, he's going to praise God. Take his health away and you'll see that he'll curse you to your face. And so that's what the book is about. God is is showing all of us that there are not fair weather disciples. True disciples don't praise the Lord only in the sunshine. They pra- They praise him when the clouds, dark clouds hover over. You know, it's the same thing that Jesus dealt with in John chapter 9. Remember there was a a man who had been born blind that the disciples and Jesus came upon. In John chapter 9, the disciples said this, and they didn't know what they were talking about either, but this they they were people out of their own culture. This was the Jewish way of thinking back then. They said, Lord, who sinned in this man's case? Was it his parents or was it the man himself? I mean, obviously, if a man is born blind, they said, he it must be attributed to some sin. And Jesus said, It's not sin at all. It's not personal sin at all. That's not why. But he's blind so that I might heal him and he might this might give God glory for the glory of God. And that was exactly the case with Paul's sufferings. God received the glory because though beaten, he wasn't put to death. Because why? The Lord was sustaining him, sustaining him and proving that he was alive and active in Paul's life. Paul knew this, and that's how he endured all of his sufferings and the erroneous opinions of others about his sufferings. And you know what, folks? This is how we endure people's false interpretations of suffering in our lives as well. You may have unsaved relatives and loved ones that will say when something really difficult happens in your life, well, they deserved it. They're preaching a false message, and and you may have that. But you know what? You can endure because you know the truth. You know the truth that that uh, what the Bible says about sufferings. and You see God working in your life, sustaining you in the midst of your suffering. That's the truth. So we've looked at verse 9 as we go back to chapter 6. Now we move on to verse 10, which is the final verse of Paul's list of trials that he endured. And he continues in this verse of giving us more paradoxes of his ministry. But I want you to notice something. It's a little bit different than the previous ones. Previous ones were contrast between human opinion and divine reality. On the one hand, you had something that was absolutely false. On the other hand, you had something that was absolutely true because it was God's evaluation. False opinions about Paul, God's true evaluation of Paul. But that's not the case in verse 10. What you have here are contrasts in Paul's life that were both true. There's nothing false about it. They were they were both true. These were paradoxical opposites, but they were they were true. They were true. You'll see what I mean when we get into this. Verse 10. He says, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's sort of like an oxymoron phrase. How could you be sorrowful, yet always rejoice? Well, this is absolutely a true statement. Absolutely true. 
Those who serve Christ understand the paradox of ministry. In the paradox of ministry, there will be sorrows and disappointments in ministry. But there will also be abiding joy and rejoicing because of Christ's work in our hearts. To minister in the Lord's name means that you will experience both grief and sorrow and yet incredible joy. Now, some people might think that that can't happen. You can't have both. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. It's sort of like a, a funeral of a Christian. There is great grief. And, and Paul speaks about this in First Thessalonians. We grieve not as those who have no hope. There is a grief. You are grieving for the loss of, of the family of this loved one. But there's great joy because absent with the body is present with the Lord. It exists together. It's a paradox. Grief and joy. Uh, Paul speaking here about his experience as a minister of the gospel. He did experience great sorrow. Paul always carried with him e- extreme pain in his heart. For example, he said concerning Israel in Romans 9, 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Paul said unceasing grief. There was not a moment that it didn't bother him that the Jewish people as a nation, his own kinsmen, had rejected Christ. Unceasing grief. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he spoke about how the Corinthians had brought him sorrow. He said in verse 1 of chapter 2, But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. Paul said, I don't want to come to you and have a visit like the last time. It was sorrowful. In verse 4, he said, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Paul said, when I penned my letter called the first letter, he said, I penned it with tears. caused me great sorrow. And I told you when we studied this, it may very well have been that the original manuscript was tear-stained. So tears dripped from Paul's eyes. Paul knew what it was like to have sorrow from the Corinthians. But not only that, I think the best illustration of this is found in this book, chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, verse 28 and 29. This this gives you a very clear picture of what Paul carried with him. He writes in verse 28, apart from such external things, and he means pressures that he had, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches, all the churches, Paul was weighed down with. He said in verse 29, who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? When when Paul heard about a bad situation in a church, somebody in sin, a disciplined situation, Paul said, I heard over that. I'm I'm pained over that. Imagine that. Paul, Paul embraced all of the churches and was pained over their, their, uh, their sin. Michelle and I met a man at the conference in Sicily this week, who is from the island of Sardinia. Sardinia is a little island uh, that belongs to Italy, just off the coast to the west. It's near uh, Corsica, which is owned by France. But this man, uh, very few believers on this island, and uh, we found out that this man is responsible to pastor four churches. Four churches. He probably pastors most of the believers there. I can assure you that he carries a great, a great weight a burden for the sins and disappointments of people as he ministers to them. That's sort of where Paul was at. Yet, though he was sad, it was his constant companion, sadness was, yet Paul says that he still rejoiced. And it's a paradox. 
He didn't let his sorrows and disappointments with people extinguish or rob him of the joy of walking in fellowship with Christ. That's why he wrote to the the Philippians. He said in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, in case you didn't get it the first time, I say rejoice. Paul never, and we must never let the sin of others and disappointments in the ministry rob us of joy. You carry with you, you carry with you as a minister of the gospel, both joy and sorrow. And it was said of Jesus that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. There's a second paradox that Paul writes of in verse 10, something that was completely true in his own life. He says in verse 10, this is a great statement, as poor yet making many rich. That's absolutely true. Both. Both parts are true. When it came to material goods, I want you to know Paul was a poor man. A poor man. In fact, the Greek word he uses here for poor doesn't mean just poor. It means to be destitute, to be poverty stricken. There's poor and then there was Paul. Paul was so poor that he told the Thessalonians, he told them that uh, night and day, he said he worked so as not to be a burden to them. You know why man works night and day? Because he has no bank account. He has nothing else to fall back on. He worked so many hours just to sustain himself and his co-workers. Paul didn't have a retirement fund. Paul didn't have a uh, social security that was going to come in. No bank accounts. He worked night and day just to sustain himself and his fellow laborers. However, though Paul was materially poor, yet the paradox of his life was that he made many spiritually rich. That's that's the great truth here. The gospel he proclaimed was a priceless treasure of infinite value. He told the Ephesians in chapter 3, he said that he preached the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. Like Jesus who left his throne in glory to become poor so that we through his poverty might be made rich, Paul became a poor, itinerant preacher so that others might have the spiritual riches of God's word. I tell you, My estimation of Paul has just grown. It was pretty high to begin with, but it has just grown as a result of this study. See, unlike so many false teachers today, Paul didn't preach to get wealthy from anybody, didn't have ulterior motives, didn't even take money, didn't even ask for money, didn't talk about honorariums and stuff like that. He just preached to make others spiritually wealthy, and he went on being poor himself. Oh, there were times where he had some abundance, but that wasn't the norm. He mentions that in... Philippians, that there were times where he knew prosperity, but the only times he would know that and people shared with him, and that was few and far between. He just preached to make others wealthy, spiritually wealthy. But don't feel sorry for Paul. Never feel sorry for Paul. Because while he may not have had many physical possessions, yet paradoxically, he writes, he had everything. He had everything. Notice the last phrase of verse 10. As having nothing yet possessing all things, all things. As an apostle of Christ, Paul had nothing of any physical value. Had no home, as I mentioned, had no bank account, had no possessions. He worked every day to sustain himself. So how can he say he possessed all things? I think the answer is found in 1 Corinthians, his first letter, chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, at verse 21, we break in. This explains it all. He said, so then let no one boast in men. Don't don't boast about who's your favorite Bible teacher, he's writing, for all things belong to you. All these Bible teachers belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas 
or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. What he's saying is everything in this universe belongs to us because we have become joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ owns everything. He is the creator of the universe. God has graciously given all things to us, though as yet we have not experienced our full inheritance. Folks, you have it all. It may not be in your possession right now. You may have less financially than others. But someday, everything you see, everything that will exist and continue to exist, it's yours. It's yours. It's yours now. You just don't experience it yet. Now, it's important as we bring this study that we've been studying these last few weeks to a close to keep in mind Paul's whole point in telling us these paradoxes. His purpose is to convince the Corinthians that in spite of the painful opinions of others who viewed him as an unknown, insignificant preacher whose constant sufferings were God's affliction upon him for his sin, yet Paul said, I endured. I endured it all. And in spite of the personal hardships of his ministry that brought both sadness and and personal poverty, Paul said, I endured. I persevered. And it was this endurance that proved he was a genuine servant of Christ. And by living in such a way, you know why Paul did this? You know why it was important that he proved that he's a personal representative of Christ? Verse 3, as we look back at chapter 6, this is really foundational to all of this. He said, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. Paul said, I don't want anybody to look at my life and think, yeah, he claims to be a Christian, but he lives like a pagan. I don't want the ministry of Christ to be discredited. I want you to know that I lived in such a way that honors Christ. I persevered through through all the garbage thrown at me. I persevered through it all. Now, how does this apply to us? To serve Christ invites all kinds of unfair and inaccurate criticisms. If you're not getting it now, you will get it someday. You serve Christ in any capacity, just expect it. You will be considered by some to have nothing of any value to say. The world will consider you insignificant and unimportant, but you just endure that kind of disgrace by remembering that God knows all about you and he knows the truth about you, that you're his servants. There will be others who will evaluate your suffering as God's displeasure with your life, and they'll judge you. But you endure by knowing that God is glorified in sustaining you. Your service for Christ will bring both sorrow over the sins of people, and yet you endure by rejoicing in Jesus Christ. Your service may lead to a life of being poor. You may not have what others have, but that's that's really all right. You just endure by knowing that you're making others rich by your ministry, And you really possess everything in Christ. Listen, live like this and no one will use your life as an excuse for not coming to Christ. Because in you, they will see what it means to be a genuine servant of Christ. Let's bow for prayer. If you know Christ, then you have felt the pain of being misjudged and poorly thought of. You know what that's like. And you may be going through that now. From God's word, I say to you, endure, endure, persevere. Get your eyes off of people. Get your eyes off of circumstances. Just endure by knowing the truth. This series should have encouraged you. 
Sometimes in our sufferings, we think we're alone. We think nobody else has gone through anything like this. Paul did, and a lot worse than you and I. Others have, but endure. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And some of you who don't know Christ, know Christians who live exemplary lives. You have no excuse. You have no excuse for not coming to Christ. You know Christians who have had their lives changed and transformed by Christ. And you know their faith is real. You know the reality of of Christianity. You've seen them through all kinds of trials. You know that they're not faking it. I urge you, come to Christ. Come to the Christ that has changed them. I'm going to give us a few moments to meditate on this, to apply these truths to our lives, and then we'll close in prayer. Father, how we read these words, and it's sad to think that the great Apostle Paul was so despised and so poorly thought of in his own time. And yet it ought to show us, Lord, how the world doesn't know what they're talking about. The world doesn't know what they're, what they're saying. To take this man, the most brilliant theologian, and say he was a religious, insignificant nobody is ludicrous. Lord, we rejoice because we know you. More importantly, you know us. We're your sheep. I pray that you'll take these marvelous truths, apply it to our lives. Lord, may we not try to get the world's applause. The Pharisees tried that. But Lord, not us. May we have your smile, the smile of approval. May we have the smile of well done, thou good and faithful servants. May that be our only pursuit, to be pleasing to Christ, be our ambition. I pray for those who may not know you, Lord, that I think of what Paul said in Acts 17, God commands men everywhere to repent. So, Lord, I pray you'll draw people to yourself, that they would indeed repent of their sin and turn to Christ for his salvation. Now, Father, we pray that you'll take these words long after we have gone home and gone off to do other things. I pray you'll take these words from your word and may they continue to bear fruit in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you've not yet trusted Christ as Savior and King, there is no better time than right now. If you have questions about salvation, please keep listening. I'll have a number you can call in just a moment. For the rest of us, Pastor Steve just alluded to a passage in Hebrews 12 when he said that we should endure fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That is key. In fact, I love this passage. The author had just described the suffering saints in the previous chapter, and here he continues by saying, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. When we consider what Jesus endured, or what Paul endured, it should help us to endure what Paul called momentary light affliction. You've been listening to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. For more information about Lakeside, or if you have questions about salvation, call 727-441-1714. 
This is also the number if you'd like to ask for a free CD with the entire sermon Pastor Steve just finished. Ask for message 637, Hindrances to the Gospel, Part 7. Since this is the last broadcast in the series, maybe you'd like to order all seven CDs. That number once more is 727-441-1714. Another resource you might want to take advantage of is the message archive on the Verse by Verse website, versebyverseradio.org. We maintain a library of each broadcast which is especially for your use. Feel free to download or stream any file you'd like to hear. That web address is versebyverseradio.org. This is Jerry Peterson. Thanks for listening. While today was the conclusion of our series about hindrances to the gospel, it is not the conclusion of our program of studying the Bible one verse at a time. I hope you can be here for our next broadcast as Pastor Steve moves on to another helpful series of studies taking us verse by verse through the Word of God.